Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Coaching Call podcast. On this podcast, we'll cover various types of coaching by trainers in sports, martial arts, fitness, and business. We'll discuss each coach's methods to getting the most out of their respective athletes or clients and how they attempt to change the platform in which they coach. Join us on a fun adventure as we discuss unique coaching styles. We've all been coached before in school, at work, or on a team. Coaching is a universal part of how we get others to get something done. Join your host, Raphael, and his guests on this unique journey in coaching. Hi, I'm Sifu Raphael, and this is the Coaching Call Podcast. This episode was made possible by listeners like you. If you enjoyed this episode, Go ahead and buy me a cup of coffee. Make it a large. I'm trying to keep this episode free of advertisements. Anything you can donate to the cause is greatly appreciated. To donate, go to paypal.me backslash Sifu Raphael. Thank you, and I really appreciate your help. Hey, Alan. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. I really appreciate you having me on. My pleasure. So would you mind sharing a little bit about your childhood. What brought you to do what you do today? Well, I guess I was just always interested in martial arts, self-defense, uh, warrior culture, everything about that. From a very little kid watching you know, martial art movies, kung fu on TV, um, reading the books that I could get at the library about it. Back in the 70s, there weren't as many books as available today. So, you know, Bruce Tegner and Fred Neff and some of those kind of books. And I was trying to practice on my own until I could finally get into formal training, but that wasn't until high school. But hmm. I've just always had a fascination with martial arts, Asia, self-defense, and the warrior culture. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really cool. And that's, you're, you're an army sniper, and you're a fifth-degree black belt. You're an attorney. And you're an active shooter response instructor. You've done a lot. Yeah, and they're and they're all sort of related. <laughs> Without a doubt, it's it's very obvious the path you've taken. Tell us how it was to be a sniper. Well, you know, I was a peacetime sniper, so I mean, I don't have a bunch of war stories because I served from 1985 until 1989. I was with the 82nd Airborne Division for a couple years. And then I was transferred over to the second ID, Scout Sniper um, School, and that's where I was an instructor. You know, at the second infantry division, I was at Camp Hovey. And it was, it, it was a funny little story, I'll tell you, because, you know, it really helped me not just with the military, but with life. When I was wanting to go to sniper school, my platoon sergeant wanted to send me. And another platoon sergeant beat him out and sent another guy. And I happened to be in the first sergeant's uh, vicinity, you know, answering phones. It's called CQ. When you're on CQ, you are the first sergeant and the company commander gopher sort of for the day. You answer phones, run errands. I was doing that. So I was right outside the first sergeant's door. And I saw the guy that went to sniper school instead of me come in. And I was thinking, you know, what the heck's he doing here? He goes into the first sergeant's (laughs) office. And all of a sudden, I hear, you quit! 
And then just a bunch of screaming and swear words and sort of at the end, it was like, get the hell out of my office before I break you in half. And I saw this guy deepestly crawl out of first sergeant's office and slink away. He had quit the school because it was too tough. Hmm. And the, you know, the next time our company got a slot, Sergeant Gerties is like, Alan, I got you into sniper school again. Or, you know, he called me Barice actually back then. And uh, so the day before I went to sniper school, the first day of the school, First Sergeant Isaac called me down to his office and he's like, you ready for sniper school? I said, yes, First Sergeant. He's like, you're not going to quit, are you? And I was like, no, First Sergeant, I'll come back a sniper. And he's like, that's what I want to hear. Go do it. Hmm. Um, I showed up at the sniper school the next day. You had to compete to get in. So there were 36 of us there. 13 of us got into the school. Out of those Hmm. 13, six graduated advanced marksmen because they didn't pass one phase of the class. Three graduated snipers and the others uh, didn't graduate at all. They dropped out or flunked out. I was among those three, and I was number two in the class. Um, Sergeant Slonsky actually was the honor graduate of my class, and I came in right behind him as number two. But I was one of the three that graduated as a sniper. That's that's really cool. Yeah, later, I went back as an assistant instructor at that same school. Excellent. Wow. So when... Did you realize that, you know, everything that you're doing is basically all related and you are a fifth degree black belt? Where did you study and what style did you do? Sure. My first martial art was judo in the 80s. And then, I, you know, and then the, my instructor moved. And so I wasn't studying for a while. I graduated high school, went into the military. When I was at Fort Bragg, I studied wolf karate for a while, but never made it to black belt level because of, you know, being doing army stuff and then getting transferred to Korea. In Korea, I only did a little bit of Taekwondo. I really didn't care for it as much. And I was just too busy with army stuff, especially when I was um, special duty at the sniper school. You'd be off doing stuff for a month at a time. So, you know, the school was four week cycle. Then I got out of the military, and I did some karate, and then I did some judo again, and then I did my first taste of hapkido, and that's what I liked the most. And then I moved again and moved around. Finally, in 1996, I said, I want to get serious about hapkido. I tried all these different arts. I moved back to Korea as a civilian this time, and I started Mm. training in hapkido. I taught English to pay the bills, and I went to two classes a day, Monday through Friday, and one class on Saturday while I lived there. And I have been going back and forth to Korea and training under that same instructor since then. So, a rid- Wow. How, how long were your classes, Alan? They were an hour to 90 minutes. You know, and he taught four classes a day. So, you know, when I went back, when I, I left Korea as a first dawn, I came back and applied to law school. Then I went back to Korea and I lived there for the summer before law school started. So that would have been like the summer of 98. And I actually lived with my instructor, Lee jung And I went to all four classes a day and then one on Saturday. 
hmm. um, while I was living with him. That's the kind of training I. <laughs> that's the kind of training I like. It was. It, it was a fantastic summer. You know, that's sort of the dream you see on TV or you know movies. Going to Asia and living with your instructor and training. That's basically what I did, and so hmm. it was a fantastic uh, experience. You know his. His parents, he wasn't married at the time. He's married with kids and stuff now. But that summer, his parents owned a minbox, which is like a small hotel down by the beach. So that's when I lived with them. They gave me my own room and bathroom. But then I ate all the meals with the family and, you know, went to classes with him, you know, the four classes a day and, and trained. So it was a, it was a fantastic experience. What a, li- what a life. That's a great life. Now... I mean, everybody wishes they can do what you did. So you you went back to the States and you went back to become an attorney. Yes, I returned to America and went to law school. And, you know, I had an alternative reason for going back to Korea. It wasn't just top keto. When, when I was living there the first time and going, you know, two classes a day and teaching English, you know, I fell in love with my wife, who was a teacher at the Korean school that I was teaching at. She was a fellow teacher. She had a degree in English and she was an English teacher as well. So when I went back and lived with my instructor, it was also to see her again. And we decided we were going to get married. And she came to America when I was in law school and we got married when I was in law school. Oh, wow. So that's really cool. I mean, what type of law did you study? You know, when I, you know, you, you generally you get a JD, I passed the bar exam, and then you usually specialize after law school. My first legal position was with an insurance company, and I was a claims attorney doing malpractice insurance claims. So when attorneys would get sued for malpractice, they would call us, we were their insurance, and then I would handle the claims for when attorneys were getting sued. And then I, I left there for a firm where I did a lot of transactional and business law and a lot of mediation. I liked the mediating the best, and that sort of is the basis of a lot of my conflict communication classes that I still teach. It's skills that I learned as a mediator and that mediators use helping resolve conflict. You know, I combined that with my experience working in bars and stadiums and concerts and different security where I was dealing with upset people, angry people, drunk people. And that forms the basis of the classes I teach of people how to deal with conflict. And, and that's critical, especially when you work in security or as a bouncer or as a police officer, understanding what can happen in a split second. I, I totally get what you're saying because I was a bouncer for five years in New York City. And um, I, I dealt with a lot of different types of fights and um, you know, where there was gangs that would come into the nightclubs. Um, some would bring machetes, chains, guns, all kinds of stuff. And in five years, I understood the situation. And I never hurt one person in five years. I was the only one that the police never came looking for. All the other bouncers were always, what happened to John? Oh, um, you know, he got locked up. Why? Well, he beat that guy up. Like, oh, I get it. We'll see him in two weeks. So it it totally is conflict resolution. Is it's got to be kind of instant when you're in a situation like that. Am I right? You're absolutely correct. I mean, the best bouncers and security are usually the best communicators. It, you are getting paid to keep people safe, to keep things from getting hurt, 
and to keep people having fun so they spend money. I mean, if you're if you're at a bar bouncing, you think it's because you get to fight. You're there for the wrong reason. That owner doesn't want fights. Mm-hmm. He wants people having a good time, spending money, no lawsuits, no injuries, nothing broken. That's what you're getting paid for. And if you're good, you spot trouble before it starts, and and we use our communication skills and other means to resolve it. Now, yes, there are times. Absolutely. There are times where you have to get physical. I mean, even the best communicators, there are situations where you have to get physical, and you better have those skills. But you want to have skills that you can do it without necessarily hurting people, because that's when lawsuits happen, and no boss wants a lawsuit. So if you can get people outside without hurting them, that's your best thing, too, because that's going to keep you out of jail, keep you out of the courtroom. Oh, without a doubt. So, Alan, you're also running uh, your active defense training. How does that work? And who do you train? Sure. You know, I first started training this after the Aurora, Colorado shooting, because people were saying, Alan, you know, you teach safety. What do we do in these shootings? And so I started studying that area more to really make sure that I could get an expertise and give people the best information. And I became certified by Safari Land, and I was with a group of instructors um, teaching the Safari Land course to teachers, hospitals, business people. And I learned an awful lot teaching that course for years with those fellow instructors. Then I took other courses, read everything I could read about it, listened to it, wrote my own book, and developed my own course. And I was teaching health centers, hospitals, schools, any group that really wanted to bring me in. And when I met Reflex Protect, the CEO of that brand new company, they said, hey, your product, my training, it it was just a natural fit. And when he offered me a position Mm -hmm. as the director of training for that company to bring my knowledge and training with his product, it just worked fantastically. So now we have been helping Lots of hospitals, lots of health clinics, lots of churches. You know, I, I was actually just writing this morning to a church in Virginia Beach. And after this call, he and I are going to be talking to see how we can help that church in Virginia Beach. We've helped a ton of schools, um, municipalities. We're working a deal right now. We're going to be helping a bus organization, a city bus. And we're going to be doing some training and helping uh, you know, all the bus drivers and stuff, how they could deal with violence and different things on, on bus situations. So pretty much any place where violence can happen, those are the groups we have been helping. And as well as law enforcement. Law enforcement is starting to use Reflex Protect, but I don't do the law enforcement training part. We have another, uh, Matt Safer and Tactical Defense. He's doing most of the law enforcement training with post-certified training that we can provide there for law enforcement agents. So when, when you're helping these organizations, is it more of a how to deal with a confrontation or it's not tactical, correct? We have a couple different things. Now, Matt Schaefer with the tactical defense, he's teaching law enforcement tactics and tactical things for law enforcement. For the civilian side... Right, but when you go, when you go to a church or a school, yep. what aspects are you teaching? For churches, schools, we got a couple programs. We have the communication programs and de-escalation, so we, we can have a program teaching those skills. When we get into the active shooter response, you know, we're teaching them, you know, the best ways to escape the situation, if that's an option, the best ways 
to deny the violence if that's an option. That could be barricading, getting behind cover, something that's bulletproof, or if, the, if he has a machete or a knife, how you can barricade and keep that person away. And we're teaching them how to defend themselves and attack back if that's their only option. And we teach mm-hmm. not only how to do reflex protect, which we think is you know the best non-lethal option, but we include things if they don't have reflex protect, you know, what can they do? And a lot of it is mindset. And we also teach things as far as what can they do beforehand to minimize, you know, these kind of occurrences. And what can they do once the police show up to make sure that they're not an innocent victim and that they can help police and not be in the way. So it's sort of trying to enable them to have the information of what they can do before, during, or after these terrible events to keep people safe and to keep more people alive. Because part of it is a first aid element. And, and we you know go over you know basic tourniquet use and things like that to save lives until the first responders can get there. Hmm. Really, really uh, amazing work you guys are doing. Uh, thank you for doing that. I think that all um, businesses should have a safety protocol that they go to, some training that they should all have. And it doesn't matter if it's a bank a corporation and like you're doing schools and even nursery schools should have protocols because what if there's divorced parents and one parent comes in all irate and we don't know what's going on. So I think what you're doing is incredible work. Alan, you've not only written one book, you've written how many now? Counting the couple that are ebook only, I have nine books and 11 DVDs. Wow. Instructional, right? Yeah. Well, one of them is a novel. One of my books, Lost Conscience is a novel. All you know, a couple of them are movie trivia and quote books. The Tough Guy Wisdom book, those I did just for fun because I like tough guy movies. And then the others are on self. <laughs> who doesn't? Right. I mean, who who doesn't? Listen, we all like Rambo. I mean, I did. I don't know if you did. Yeah. Hey, Rambo is why I went in the army. It's movies where I <laughs> <laughs> see that it motivated. It did. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it, it's it's funny when. When we think the things that have motivated us in life, and it could be as easily as a movie or a comment or just watching someone or someone actually saying, hey, do what I'm doing. Who who influenced you the most, would you say? I've had a lot of influences. My father probably being one of the, the biggest. Uh, he was career military. So while Rambo influenced me, the Army you know, I was always, you know, sort of military-minded and geared. My dad being retired military, um, he was retired Air Force. Two of the years he spent in were over in Vietnam. But for writing, and especially getting into self-defense writing, Mark McYoung was a, a big influence. I read a couple of his books early on when I was in the military, his first couple books. I wrote him a letter. He wrote me back. And letters turn hmm. letters turn to phone calls. Phone calls turn to meeting in person. And then I told him my idea for a book, and he encouraged me to write it. And I did write it. And I ended up in California, living with him for a while. Then I got my own apartment. But when I first got there, he gave me a place to crash. We were working together, uh, doing security and bodyguard work for exotic dancers in Riverside, California. So we would train during the day, we'd work at night, and he was reading my manuscript and giving me some pointers and some help 
and we tidied it up and got it ready and sent it to Paladin Press, which was his publisher, and he wrote a forward for that book. And then that was my first book in 1996. I had actually left Riverside and went to Korea to train in Hapkido. So I was actually over in Korea training in Hapkido when that book was published by Paladin. But Mark was Hmm. definitely a a big influence that helped me get into the writing and teaching of self-defense. And we're good friends to this day. That's incredible. So you did what most people fear, asking. Most people fear asking for the help or asking for the advice. And and you had no problem doing that. That's why your life turned around in a way, because you had no fear of asking for the help. Am I right? I think you're exactly right. And I have never really had the fear of asking or meeting people. You know, people laughed at me when I said I wanted to meet President Ronald Reagan because he was my first commander in chief. I wrote the letter and I ended up getting to spend 30 minutes with President Reagan in January of 93, one-on-one in his office down in California. And to make it even better, it was in the Die Hard building. (laughs) You remember the first Die Hard movie? Yes, yes. The exterior shots of Nakatoma Plaza were actually the Fox building, and that's where President Reagan had his offices after he left the presidency. And so I met him at the top of that building and got to spend 30 minutes because I asked. So you are definitely correct. And that's all you had to do. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. So we have to encourage people to uh, really go out and, and pursue their dreams and without fear. Because we don't know unless we ask. And that, that's huge. In writing your books and being in the military, a lot of people have been in the military, but not many people pursued what you did, your dreams. Why did you? It's just sort of always been the path. I mean, I've always liked to do different things and new things. So it was like I was in... Montana, I wanted a change. I'm going to go in the Army. I was at Fort Bragg for a couple of years, jumping out of airplanes. I, I loved the 82nd Airborne Division. I liked jumping. I liked the people that I was with. But I also wanted to see Asia. And so fortunately, First Sergeant Hogard, he helped me get transferred to Korea. And so I loved it in Korea. Then I came back and I went to college. And then I went to Japan and lived in Japan for a year. Then I was in Riverside, California with Mark doing the book. Then I went to Korea. Then I came back to law school. I've always just sort of, hey, I want to do that. And I've jumped to go do it. Mm. And most of the time, I've, it's been landed successfully. And it's been very a rewarding experience for doing it. And by the way, I, I want to I thank you for your service, um, for you know keeping our country safe when you were serving. Thank you. I appreciate that. Absolutely. And, you know, my brother was a, he's he's in the reserves now, but he used to jump out of helicopters for the Marines. How was your first experience? That's crazy, right? How was your first experience? And when you say paratrooper, you're talking about jumping out of uh, helicopters or airplanes? Mostly airplanes. I only jumped out of a helicopter once. I did do one jump out of a Huey uh, helicopter, but all of the rest were out of C-141 and C-130 aircraft. Those are the two aircraft that I jumped out of the most. Can you share with us your first jumping experience? 
the first jump was during jump school. So jump school is three weeks long. So for the first two weeks, we had been doing a lot of PT and learning how to hit the ground, the parachute landing fall, because you come down hard with military parachutes. It's not those soft landings where people are standing up like you see on TV. The suits that we were using, you come down a lot faster. So you learn to fall so you don't get hurt. And so, and then we were practicing jumping out of the door of the mock towers. So week three, you're actually going to go up and make five different jumps before you graduate. So that first jump, I was like the third person from the door. So there were two people in front of me. And you're, you're, you're doing the stuff they tell you. You know, you have to stand up. You hook up your static line. You check the static line. You know, the guy in front and behind you, you're checking each other. Everybody's ready. And now you're waiting for the green light. Green light comes on. The jump master says, go. That first guy jumps out. And the whole line just starts following him out the door. So it was sort of a blur. It was like, go. And it's like, wow, he's gone. He's gone. I'm out. I'm jumping. The biggest shock to me was when you jumped out of the tower, the tower was standing still, and you fell straight down, and then you were caught by the ropes, and that you slid down the cable and you got unhooked. When you jump out of an airplane, it never dawned on me that that airplane was traveling at whatever speed it's traveling. So when you went out that door, that wind hits you, and it flips your body sort of up sideways, and then your chute opens, and you come dangling down. So it was definitely very different than jumping out of the tower. And that was the biggest shock. And then all of a sudden you're floating down going, Oh, this is cool. And then it's like, Oh, that ground's coming up fast. What am Oh, okay. Feet, knees together. Get ready. And boom, you hit the ground. And then it's like, wow, I did it. And it was, it was a rush. It was really cool. And then you got ready to go do it, do it again. <laughs> so, how long would you say was your actual flight from the time you jumped to the time you landed? It's not very long because military, you know, the static line jumps, you're not that high. So there was no free fall. So when you go out the plane, mm. you know, the, the static line opens your chute right away and you're coming down. I never really timed it, but it's not that long. But it is long enough that you can look around and think, hey, this is really cool for a few you know, seconds before the ground starts getting close. And you want to make sure your feet and knees are really tight together and you get ready to land in the proper parachute landing fall so you don't get hurt. Right. And how was that so different than jumping out of a helicopter? The helicopter was about the same. The helicopter, instead of jumping out the door, we were sitting on the you know, in the doorway. So your, your legs were sort of dangling out over the, the runner. And what they told you is push yourself out so you don't hit the, the runner down there. And I actually, I didn't push myself quite far enough and my shoulder hit, hit, which made me spin a little bit. So when the chute opened, I had a bunch mm -hmm. of uh, tangles in the riser. And you just kick your legs and pull and it sort of spins and opens up. But you know, when I jumped out of the helicopter, I was like, oh, shoot, I hit the riser. And then I'm like, oh, I got twisted. Get them untwisted. And I got them untwisted and landed. So it was a cool experience. And, and you had to think fast, of course. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the, the scariest jump I ever had was at night one time. And, you know, you jump out of both sides of the plane. So you got people going out both sides. Well, I jumped out, and all of a sudden, there's all this silk all over me. 
And I didn't, at the, my first thought was, oh, it's my parachute. Oh, no. So I need to pull a reserve. But then I'm like, I can't pull a reserve. It'll get tangled in all this silk. And, and then I was like, well, it can't be my parachute. It's my parachute be out back. And then, all, you know, by all these thoughts are going through my mind at a bazillion miles an hour. And then my chute opened and it pulled me out of the silk. Because that silk was a, another guy's parachute that, you know, had come out the other side of the, mm. the plane. And I was tangled in his. But when my chute opened and pulled me away it allowed his chute then to open and, and we were fine but for a couple seconds or however long it was it, it seemed like a long time but i doubt it was my brain was just racing and you definitely had the pucker factor when that silk was just all over my face and covering it without a doubt <laughs> so alan how long have you been coaching now well if you go back to being a, an instructor with the second i ID Scout Sniper School. That was 1988-89. Then I taught a class in the early 90s, not martial art related, when I was going to college, undergraduate school. When I met up with Mark McYoung in the early 90s, I co-taught with him. You know, I was his assistant. And so that was sort of my first uh, taste of teaching the safety and self-defense aspect was being his assistant for classes. Then if you speed up, it wasn't until 1998-99 that I started teaching Hapkido. And I was only a first don. I, you know, I was going to law school, and nobody was doing Hapkido in Missoula. So there was no place for me to, to train and study. And a couple instructors, and, and also Mark McYoung, said, teach. Teach what you know. You'll get better. And so I started teaching what I knew, the, or the, the low belt, you know, rank. And at the same time, I was studying the higher black belt stuff so I could go back and test in Korea. And I've been teaching ever since. And so as I, you know, continued to go back and forth to Korea and go up to rank, which I'm a fifth on now, but I've been teaching ever since I was a first on in 1998. Hmm. I mean, you went to law school to become a lawyer but that's not your is that your profession or is that something that you you have in, under your belt let's say but your primary business is more of your passion which is your business the law school was something that i wanted to do after practicing for a while i realized it was not my passion so i have not practiced law in quite a few years i am still a licensed attorney and I help with the dispute resolution committee with the state bar and with mediation things once in a while. But my passion was safety, self-defense, martial arts. So I've always taught martial arts uh, while I was an attorney and while I was doing everything else. I've continually taught Hapkido um, since the 98. I was solo on my own writing books and teaching until I met Reflex Protect. And that company just fit with everything that I do so well that now, you know, my, my primary occupation right now is the director of active defense training for reflex protect and doing the training and also doing some sales and other stuff because we're still a small company. We wear multiple hats um, with reflex protect. That's my primary, but still writing and teaching about martial arts and safety 
on the side, which just complements the safety teaching and stuff I do with Reflex Protect. It, it sounds like you guys are on the right path for uh, growing that company because you're directing it. You are essentially what we need in this world. We need people to go out in the community and help people understand the dangers we face on a daily basis and also to be able to be comfortable when they go out because they have the knowledge that if they need to use it, they can. So, Alan, are you, do you currently have a school that you're, you're, you're teaching at? I don't have my own school. I have been teaching out of a gym uh, for I'm not sure how many years. When I first started teaching in 98, hmm. I was teaching the Taekwondo club at the University of Montana. And I would come in and teach those guys Hapkido. Then there was another Taekwondo instructor in town. He asked me to do a Hapkido program out of his school. And I, I did that for until he closed his school. Then I just went to a gym. And at the time, it was Gold's Gym. Now that's called Ridge Fitness, and I started teaching the Hopkito program out of there because at the time you know, I, was, I was in law school and then practicing attorney, you know, practicing law. I didn't want to own my own school. It was just I wanted to teach, but it was easier to teach out of a gym and keep my day job in my profession, which at the time was a lawyer. Now it's with Reflex Protect, but I'm still teaching at the same gym. I love the fact that you're teaching because it's your passion. I feel the same way. And the reason I love to teach is because every time I'm teaching someone, and it could be a little kid, a big kid, an adult, just the fact that I have to show them the moves. And every time I re-show the move, and I could have done this move a million times, I learn something. I learn a different angle, a different way. And the, the experience that I get from helping someone is just priceless. I am the same way. And again, I, I do teach because I'm passionate about it. I love helping people. And I may not be the best martial artist in the world. There are people that definitely have better skill sets than I do, can kick higher, can jump higher. But I have really worked on my teaching. And I really think that I am good at sharing the knowledge and bringing out what's better for other individuals. I don't want to make them a clone of me. I want to help them be the best they can be. And I study the mechanics and what goes behind techniques and why techniques work and try to adapt that to different people and their strengths and weaknesses and get them to understand that meaning behind stuff so they can really own it. And that's with my class or when I travel and do seminars. You know, I, I really like to share that information, and I really work on trying to be the best teacher I can be. Yeah. What, one of the things that is very troubling is uh, so many martial arts instructors are teaching moves that they couldn't even bite themselves out of a paper bag. Meanwhile, they're teaching it and passing it down as authentic, real self-defense techniques. And it's, uh, it, they're hurting um, people because people think that, oh, I can do this move and, you know, I can protect myself. Meanwhile, not true. What, what are your feelings about 
that situation or the way people are teaching where they actually have never been in a situation and they're teaching all these different moves that they don't even know how to really apply them if it was a real-life situation. I think we need to be honest about what we do, what we know, and, and how we're doing it. You know, uh, Bob Orlando, you know, rest in peace, you know, was a good friend of mine, fantastic martial artist. And I remember it was him and Mark McYoung introducing me to a concept of, you know, different reasons people train and study. And, you know, some people train for sport. Some people train for um, exercise. Others train for self-betterment. And others train for self-defense. And they're not all the same or equal. And sometimes one can be detrimental to the other. My per- mm-hmm. my personal training has always been for self-defense and self-betterment. And those aren't always the same. And there are things in the Hapkido curriculum that I would never try to do on the street. But I will share them with my Hapkido students who are trying to learn everything that I learned from Korea and other sources. But I'll be honest with them. I'll say, you know, this is more the art of Hapkido. I personally don't care for it for a realistic situation. And then there are other things that maybe I picked up from a Kelly McCann or, or Mike Gannett or Mark McYoung or Peyton Quinn, somebody that wasn't doing martial arts at the time but was doing self-defense. And, I, and I'll tell a student, this is not in the Hapkido curriculum, but it is really effective for a real-world situation and we're going to practice it. And I just try to be really honest with what I'm showing and the stuff that I feel is really good for self-defense and the stuff that is more the art. And if I'm teaching someone a self-defense or safety class, and this would be a short class, like an active shooter or somebody they bring me in, then I don't teach them the Hapkido art stuff. I just teach them the real basic, simple stuff that could keep them alive because that's what they want to know. But for martial artists, they want to go beyond that. I will teach the more complicated stuff, but I'm going to be honest and say, you know, this would be good for a martial art demonstration. It looks cool. It's athletic. It's fun to learn, but you're never going to do it on the street. So that's sort of my philosophy and how I try to teach. That's that's the right way to teach. And thank you for for saying that because a lot of people do not separate. One is a self-defense and the other one's an art. And you have to be able to take and, and separate them because everything you said is true. Certain things are going to work. Certain things, why even bother? It's it's a waste of time. Efficiency in a in a real life situation is critical, especially timing. And the faster you get to to be able to um, get out of a situation, the better off you are. Alan, why are you still teaching? Why are you still coaching? Because it's part of me. And it's just, I, I love it. I, I can't really picture a time where I wouldn't be sharing and coaching and teaching and helping others. I'm, I'm blessed to have been able to have trained with Kim Hae Young, you know, Dr. Kim Hae Young. Um, years ago, I met him for the first couple times in Mississippi at some seminars. In the last few years, he's been one of the instructors at the Korean Martial Arts Festival in Crestview, Florida where I've also been an instructor. But when I'm not instructing, I'm taking all these other classes 
and, and trying to absorb everything I can. And a couple years ago, at one of uh, Dr. Kim's classes, you know, he, he was just saying how he has evolved over the years with his teaching, but he's still teaching. And he's in his 80s. And I'm like, that's what I want to be doing. Mm. When I'm in my 80s, mm-hmm. I want to still be out on the mat teaching, even though it might be a little different teaching than I did 20 years ago or that I do right now. I still want to be helping people. And he was just a fantastic role model. And it's fantastic to see people his age. Grandmaster Timmerman, another one. Grandmaster Timmerman just turned 80 this year. And he's still helping and teaching people in the martial arts. Those kind of examples keep me going. I totally agree. It's amazing when we don't give up. We don't, especially on ourselves. A lot of people, they'll have a career, they'll have a life. And then all of a sudden... They retire and they sit at home. I could never see myself sitting at home. And obviously you can't either because we have a passion and a passion is not a job. Like I said, I've said it and maybe you haven't heard it yet, but I'm going to tell you one day I'm going to get a job. I promise (laughs) one day I'm going to get a job because I love so much. What I do is to me, this is not work. This is just me helping and and doing something I love. And the fact that I can make a living from it, that's second. But the most important thing for me is to keep my passion alive. Every time when I've trained with anyone, and I've trained with all different types of masters, when they say who's got knowledge, I don't even raise my hand. I don't want to I want to be treated like like a white belt so that I can absorb every little nuance and every little technique and every little Whatever they're saying, I'm absorbing it. So I become a huge white belt sponge. And I think that a lot of people who are, who've trained for a long time, they forget that feeling. And it's an amazing feeling to be able to train with anyone. And it's important for us to always understand that we were always a white belt first. We were always a beginner. And it doesn't matter in what it is that we're doing. It could be in finance. It could be in business. We were always a beginner. And we should always take everything with open arms and open you know, open heart as well. I agree with that so much. And that's, that's why, you know, I love going to places like the Korean Martial Arts Festival down at Crestview because I get to be the student. And a lot of times I'll volunteer to, to be the dummy for the instructor that's teaching. You know, you love to work with, Grandmaster Jeff Booth with his Don Bong. And then, you know, I would go home, you know, come back here to Montana and show my instructor, show my students the the burns in my wrist that the Don Bong rope left when he was using me to, you know, show some of the more painful techniques. Or I'll show them the Mm -hmm. video of, you know, somebody slamming me around a little bit. Because I like them to know that, hey, he still gets out there and learns and takes some thumps and, you know, gets out there and does it too. I think that's important uh, to be on both sides. And I enjoy it. I feel blessed that I've been able to train with so many different people. And, you know, my instructors in Korea, obviously, I've learned the most from, from Hapkido. And I love the relationship I have with them. But I have good relationships with other instructors, you know, all over the world, literally. 
when you talk about Grandmaster Booth in Australia, Grandmaster Timmerman in Canada, and all over the United States. And I've learned so much from so many people that I feel very fortunate then to be able to pass on what I've learned to others. Yes, yes, totally agree on, on all of that. Alan, if someone wanted to reach you, first of all, what state uh, do you teach in? What, what state are you in? I am in Missoula, Montana, so up here in the Rocky Mountains. Love the Rockies. So if someone wanted to reach you and um, either get advice from you or just become a fan of yours, you know I'm a fan now. <laughs> so how does someone get in touch with you or follow you on social media? Would you mind sharing that with us? Sure. And I'm all over social media. And I'm, I know a lot of times they say you should only have one place. I'm going to give a few because it depends on what people are interested in. If you are interested in Reflex Correct. Protect and the defensive spray and what I'm doing there, ReflexProtect.com, Reflex Protect on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, you can find stuff there. If you are interested in martial arts more, Hopkido Martial Arts, YourWarriorsEdge.com, YourWarriorsEdge Facebook page. If you're interested more in self-defense and safety, not traditional martial arts, go to surviveanddefend.com, Survive and Defend Facebook page. There's also Survive and Defend on YouTube, safety and self-defense videos. Your Warrior's Edge on YouTube, more martial art, hapkido, and those kind of videos. And just Alan Barith. You can find me all over the place because my name's associated with all of them. Perfect. Perfect. And we will have your information for any listener that wants to. We'll put it on the notes on the podcast as well. I appreciate it. Alan, this has been very, very cool. Very, And, and once again, I can't thank you enough for, for helping and, and protecting our country and for your service. I'm honored to, to have you as my guest today. Well, well thank you very much for, for having me as your guest. And I guess as a parting thing, I would like to tell all your listeners, get out there and enjoy what life has to offer. Do it safely. That's why I teach safe habits and self-defense and martial arts. So you can go out and enjoy things in life and just be safe while you're doing it. Because even though there's negative out there, there's still a lot of good for us to enjoy. And I think that's the most important thing we can do. Enjoy life, help others, and stay safe. Absolutely. Life is beautiful. It is. Thank you, Alan. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'll be back with a new episode and a new guest. You can find all episodes of the Coaching Call podcast on Apple, Anchor, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and wherever you listen to podcasts. I ask that you please leave me an honest review. This episode was made possible by listeners like you. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and buy me a cup of coffee. Make it a large. I'm trying to keep this episode free of advertisements. Anything you can donate to the cause is greatly appreciated. To donate, go to paypal.me backslash Sifu Raphael. Thank you and I really appreciate your help.